Well, good morning. It's always uh, good to be with you. It's especially good this morning uh, to be here, to be uh, in this place, to be standing on this stage, to be ready in a moment to preach. Uh, I want to take just a moment again to express my deepest thanks to our, our shepherds who every year uh, during the summer both empower me and encourage me to take some time out of that rhythm of, of weekly preaching so that I can pray and study and plan for the future. And I'm just so so blessed by having that kind of, of space in my, my spirit and my soul to dream about what it is God wants us to hear, not just on a weekly basis, but, but thinking about all of our future. What is it that God is calling us towards? Who is it that God is calling us to be? And so I want to thank the shepherds, but I also want to thank the rest of our staff uh, who, who stepped up this month and, and covered my, my role, covered my, my place here, and did an amazing job. Uh, I, I'm still thinking about last Sunday uh, and, and all of those stories that we were blessed to hear about God at work through our, our student ministry, through the, the youngest people in our church in many ways who are, are journeying with us in faith, and not just journeying with us, but, but leading us through their example. I'm thankful for Stephen and Keith and the sermons that they preached as well, opening up their hearts and calling us to be the kinds of people that God wants us to be. Uh, and, and every year during that time, Lauren and I try to, to take the girls somewhere. We really, because of, of VBS and some other things this summer, we weren't really able to get out of town much. But we did just at the end of this last week. Uh, we, we jumped in the van and drove to Denver so that we could spend a couple of days there. But the real reason was that, that Reese, my youngest, had asked for us to see as a family if we could go and see the San Francisco Giants play in person. We watched them lose in person. Uh, and, and while that was, was beginning to happen, they had a lead and they lost the lead. It was tied up. And I said something about my disappointment. And Reese whispered to her mother, he's mad and they're not even losing yet. <laughs> but they did. Uh, and so I knew what was coming. But we, we had a, a pep talk not just me to them, but them to me, that, that the point was not whether or not they won, but that we got to be there, and so we, we had a good time there. Uh, I, I will always remember one conversation I had with, with Riley there. She's, she's getting older all the time, it seems, and, and you don't know exactly, you know, Lauren and I talk about who she more like in, in different ways, and we, we went to a restaurant, a Chinese food restaurant, and at the end, we were, you know, cracking open our, our fortune cookies, and not that we believe anything is going to happen because of those fortune cookies, but we, we like to open them up, and especially if one's positive, you know, you read it to somebody, and so I opened up Riley's cookie and read to her what her fortune was, and it was, your fondest wish is about to come true. I thought, well, that, that might at least make her feel a little bit better, and she just shook her head, and she said, I guess somebody ran out of new ideas. I'll let you decide who she's more like. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's good to be back in this place. Uh, and, and as I thought about where do we want to begin, what is it that is most central to who we are as, as followers of Christ, my mind kept coming back to, to those favorite words in 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul writes, and now these three remain faith. Hope and love, but the greatest of these 
is love. Faith, hope, love. If you've ever spent time studying the Apostle Paul's writings, in addition to the Trinity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, this this is Paul's Trinity when it comes to being people who are, are becoming more and more everyday disciples, people whose lives are being shaped and, and these are the, the forces, these are the elemental ingredients for the Apostle Paul that should be making us who we are, faith, hope, and love. And as James talked about during our time of communion together, when you think about that, that first word, faith, you have to go to, to Hebrews chapter 11. You have to go to that, that great passage that introduces us or reintroduces us, depending on whether or not we've ever heard it before, to all of these great heroes of faith. And so I want us to listen to that, that text together now. And I'm, I'm going to read a longer portion of Scripture than we typically do in a sermon. I'm not going to read all of these verses in the interest of time. So it may be easiest for you to, to follow along on the screens. But if, if you want to, I want to always encourage you to open up your, your own Bible and follow along. But we will be skipping around just a bit. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now faith is being confident of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. For by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, God's people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. After the army had marched around them for seven days, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. God, as we focus our hearts on your word this morning, and as we hold in our hearts this great cloud of witnesses, We pray that you would help us hear exactly what it is from you that we need to hear the most. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. They say that that knowledge is power. And in my experience, I think they're right. And if that's the case, then you and I should be in pretty good shape because we live in a day and age when knowledge, information is as easy to access, to get at, as it's ever been in the history of the world. I mean, think about it. With the number of smartphones in this room right now, I could rattle off one trivia question after another, and and pretty soon, probably in less than two minutes, we'd have all the, the right answers that we needed, right? You could tell me that the official state reptile is, does anyone know it without looking it up? The Texas horned lizard. So somebody was wrong out there. I don't know. I'm sorry. Okay, that there's an official state vegetable, sweet onion, this is terrifying, there is a Texas state flying mammal, you don't want one of those, free-tailed bat, right, you could tell me there's 254 counties in, in Texas, you could tell me that it was bordered by four states in one country, you could tell me that the highest uh, place in all of, of Texas is... Guadalupe Peak, 8,749 feet, okay? So we could do all that, right? We could keep asking different questions, and somebody who's the fastest typer in the room could find it. But but the reality is we, we know from experience that while we have access to the most information that, that anyone's ever had in the history of the world, just at our fingertips, that, that while that brings us some amount of power in life, right, that, that allows us to, to be able to wield that information and analyze it and, and things that are far more important than just trivia questions, but real life facts and information that we need, as much as we know that it's power, it's still, it's not enough. It, it's, it's never enough. It, it doesn't matter how much we're able to get our hands on, you and I still find reasons to to bump up against the wall the limitations of what we know and the realization of what we don't know, right? All All the knowledge in the world 
It can't ever answer the most important questions that haunt us, the the questions that demand something deeper than a list of, of accurate information. All the objective knowledge in the world can't ease all of the anxieties that, that we struggle with, the uncertainties that, that can chase us down long after we've gathered all the, the related and the pertinent data that we can, that we can find and, and we can categorize and we can define and, and, and we can try to predict. I mean, I can't speak for any of you, but for myself, in spite of all the information that I'm able to access, I just can't shake the feeling that when it comes to it, the more I know, the less I understand. The more answers I'm able to reach, the more new questions suddenly I find. The more I know, the more I am aware, the more I can feel deep down in my soul that there's so much more that I don't yet know. And maybe that's why in this information age that we live in, right, in this, this great technology era, despite knowing more than we've ever known, we're also keenly aware, maybe more than, than ever before, of all the things we can't know. All the things we can't predict. And if there's one thing about being a human being, it's that any time we don't know, we're afraid. Right? That, that the unknown is something that causes us to worry. It's something that, that gives us anxiety, that the uncertainty is something we're constantly running away from. We're, we're trying in a world that, that in many ways feels like it is falling apart. We want something to stay the same. We want something to hold on to. And this is true for us, even as Christians. Even as people who have, have tried to reorient our lives around the life of Jesus Christ, as people who have access again more than at any other time in the world to the Bible and different translations of the Bible and, and different commentaries about the Bible. This book that, that we say that we care so much about, that, that we call something, right? We, we have a, a term for it. It's, it's a light. It's a lamp. It's something that's supposed to help us see where we're supposed to go next. And over and over in, in this this book that is a light to us, it's, it's a lamp unto our feet, right? A, a light unto our path. We find over and over again these words. Do not be afraid. Right? Do not be afraid. Now, I find it interesting that, that when we're trying to help people in our lives, other people who are afraid, we often say things like, you know what? You don't have anything to fear but fear itself. Or I know you're really worried about all that, but you have nothing to worry about. Or, or we say something like, you know, I, I know you're anxious, but you just should stop being anxious. And I don't know if you've ever had somebody who's well-intentioned give you that kind of advice, but it never works. Right? It never works for someone to tell you when you're afraid, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Or when you're really worried, for someone to say, you know what, you just, you have nothing to worry about. Stop thinking about those things. Or, yeah, I know you're really struggling with anxiety right now, but you just need to, you need to re realize there's nothing in your life that really should be causing that anxiety. Well, when we say that to one another, I think we mean well, but we're, we're misspeaking and, and we're misapplying the deeper lessons of Scripture when it comes to fear and worry and anxiety. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount... 
don't worry, it's because he knows there's a lot of things to worry about. When, when God comes to people, whether it's through an angel, through a prophet, and, and that angel, that messenger, that prophet says to somebody, don't be afraid, they're always saying that when the person's afraid. And they have good reason to be afraid. When, when the Bible talks about anxious thoughts, it's not saying that, that you have nothing to make you anxious. It's actually trying to speak the truth that there's all kinds of things in this world that logically should make you anxious. We are people who have lives that are marked by more than logic. We, we are the people who have lives that are marked by faith. God, God never pretends there's nothing to fear. God takes seriously all the reasons we have to be afraid and then gently responds, don't be afraid anyway. Now see, that's different. Because I think often when we try to tell one another, you don't have anything to be afraid of, or you, you have nothing to, to be anxious about, or, or you have nothing that, that should be keeping you up at night, we're, what we're doing is we're actually denying what's really taking place. That's, that's sticking your head in the sand. God's way of dealing with fear is not to stick your head in the sand. It's to hold your head up high. It's, it's not denial. It's determination. It's to know all the things that you really could be worried about. To realize all the things that you should be afraid of. To see clearly the things that are causing you anxiety. And in the face of all those things, to choose to trust that when God says we don't have to be afraid in a world that makes us afraid, he's always telling us the gospel truth. You and I, we may be afraid of a lot of different things for a lot of different reasons, but we're by no means the first of God's people, to be afraid. The writer of Hebrews, if you've ever studied it before, you know that the community he's writing to, they're struggling with fear and nervousness and anxiety. They're, they're feeling like the world has turned against them. They're feeling alone. And so in the face of a community that's, that's struggling with, okay, now we believe in God and we've made commitments to, to follow Jesus, but our lives are still difficult and the world is still filled with challenges and darkness, what, what is it that we're supposed to be holding on to? And, and the writer of Hebrews talks over and over again about this reality that, that the Jesus who came to live and die and, and raised was raised to life again, that he raises us up with him, that he's with us, that he's walking beside us. But it's not something that we're going to see in order to believe. It's something we're going to have to believe in order to see. It's something we're going to have to actively trust in order to experience. And I think we can relate. I think we know what it's like to be in that place, to look around at our world and at our lives and, and, and wonder where God is in all of this, where Jesus is, what, what is the Holy Spirit up to. And if over and over in Scripture, God is saying to us, don't be afraid, you don't need to, you don't need to let the things that, that frighten you actually terrorize you because I'm here, I'm with you. We, we know that, that struggle, that push and pull. And so all of us have times, at least I know I do, I, I have times where I really have to go back to Hebrews chapter 11 
and read those names, read those stories again, that great cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews says, when you start to feel like you can't keep going, when the things that frighten you are going to stop you, when your doubts are going to trap you and paralyze you, go back to these people and realize that they're pulling for you. Now, I think the difficulty in, in reading a story one after another, right, about a person who, who's held up as an example of faith is we can be tempted to think that this is like a group of seemingly fearless and invincible super, superheroes of faith. And you can start to think, well, you don't really fit in with that list of people, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. This cloud of witnesses is populated with ordinary folks, and I want you to understand this. They are people who had fears we know by heart. Abel, who must have been afraid of his brother Cain before, before Cain took his life. And who knew that one of the, the tensions that they had as brothers was Abel's relationship with God. And that somehow, some way, Abel's relationship with God was, was closer in a way that was driving Cain crazy. And Abel could have given in to that fear, and he could, have, he could have tried to worship in private. He could have tried to have a relationship with God that, that wasn't in one way or another somehow making Cain feel frustrated and angry. But Abel overcomes that fear because his relationship with God is more important to him than anything that Cain might do to him. And that story, it doesn't have a fairy tale happy ending. Not the way we're expecting it. And yet, in the midst of that, that story, we find that God is always there. That God sees all of it. That God cares about Abel, loves Abel, is watching over Abel. Even though nobody without faith would be able to see how God is present. Enoch, who had to be afraid that he was going to be misunderstood... Right? When you live a life that is so pleasing to God that when you get to the end of that life, God decides, you know what? You're not going to have to go through the process of dying. Let's just walk together and you will step from life here to life there. If, if you had, had found a way to be someone who in your relationship with God was that pleasing to God, my guess is he lived with a daily fear of having all the people around him misunderstand him and think that his head was in the cloud and, and, and that he was focused on things that, that were not of this world. And yet Enoch somehow has that kind of relationship with God anyway. Noah, who had to have all kinds of fear, not just about weather, right, but about how his neighbors and his community, how they were going to react to him when he started to build this, this boat and, and keep telling them that they needed to understand that the God who was calling him to build it was a God they needed to have a relationship with. And, and he had to be afraid that they were going to think that he thought he was better than them or that his family was better, that he was, that he was self-righteous somehow, that, that maybe he was afraid someone was going to get angry enough and frustrated enough to sabotage the, the ship. And Abraham, who, who out of the middle of nowhere starts to hear God speak to him and calls him to leave 
every, everything he's, he's ever known and just about everyone he's, he's ever had in his life and go to a place that he's never seen and build a new life there. And, and can you think of all the questions you'd have, all the fears that, that would keep you up at night if, if you decided you were really going to listen to that voice? How did he convince Sarah to go? How did that happen? Right? How did they get to the place of believing that somehow, some way, this voice that he was hearing really did belong to the creator of heaven and earth? And that the promises that were being spoken to him were true. And then late in life, after some of those promises had come true, Isaac, his son, is there. God, God suddenly says, you know what? I want, I want him back. Give him back to me. Can you imagine, as a parent, all of the thoughts and the, the suffering, the sorrow that he went through as he tried to make sense of what, what is going on? I have based my whole life on following this God who suddenly lost his mind. And yet he trusts that somehow, some way, even if, if he doesn't understand it, the story can't end with Isaac being taken away from him forever. That somehow, some way, God would give Isaac back to him. And if you know the story, God can't bear to take Isaac. Because we don't have a God who takes children away from their parents. By faith, Isaac, whose life had to have been changed in that moment, he raises two sons of his own, and they're struggling to get along, and he tries to speak words of blessing over them, but he has the fear that we all have as parents, especially as our, our, our children get older, and that is, what kinds of people are they going to be when we're not making all of their decisions for them? What, what kinds of choices are they going to make? And he wonders, are they going to find a way to ever get along? And, and for most of their adult life after Isaac dies, they don't get along. They, they hate each other. But God stays in their story and finds a way to bring them back together through the gift of grace that none of them expected to experience. Jacob, Isaac's son, who fought with his brother Esau most of his life, he he has his own struggles in his family, and he, he has to be afraid of what's going to happen to his children and his grandchildren as they have to move from where they are, and they're, they're staying in Egypt because it's the only place they can survive, and he doesn't know exactly what kind of future there's going to be. And then Joseph, who has a sense that that future is going to be very difficult, and he's afraid of, of a pharaoh in the future who's not going to know him, and, and, and in forgetting Joseph might mistreat all of the people that, that are in his family. And that he trusts somehow, some way, that even if it comes to that, God is going to deliver them. And then his fears come true. And so Moses' parents are stuck in this position where the, the Pharaoh, who doesn't know anything about Joseph, is threatened by, by just how large, how numerous the people of Israel are getting. And, and there's this death sentence that passed for all little baby boys. And... I love that it says that, that they're afraid, but they're not afraid enough of the king and his edict to follow it. Can you imagine all the anxiety that they had to feel for three? Have, have you ever tried to take care of a baby for three hours? How do you hide a baby for three months? Can you imagine how, how difficult that was? And then... And then I love the fact that, 
that the Hebrews writer says they weren't afraid of the king. And guess what? They raise a son who's not afraid of the king. He's afraid of a lot of things. Moses struggles with fear at various times in his life story, but he is not afraid of the king compared to his concern for being afraid of of being somebody God doesn't want him to be. That's what he's really afraid of, and he's somehow able to hold on to that courage in the midst of all of those difficulties. And And then the Israelites themselves, as they go on that journey of the Exodus, can you imagine being the first person who after the wind blows long enough to separate the Red Sea, there had to be a first guy, a a first girl. Somebody said, I'm going for it. I'm guessing they were about five or six or seven. (laughs) Right? I'm thinking a child led them through. Because they had the courage to believe that even though things might go wrong at any moment as they tried to walk through that, that watery valley, They believed that God was going to keep them safe. And not just the people of Israel, but then the army of Israel, right? When they're they're just marching in circles around Jericho, they have their weapons holstered. And they have to be wondering with God, hey, do you know how battles work, God? You don't just walk around your enemies with your weapons all all tucked away safely. You you prepare for engagement. What do, you, what do you want us to do here? We're not even facing them. We're just to the side of them, going in a circle. How's this going to work? But they do it because God asks them to. And then Rahab, who's in that city, and she's struggling with exactly who she wants to be. She knows who she's been. It's a life filled with with dark struggles and difficulties that she probably doesn't want to think about, but she's got a chance at a new life to be a new person. And so she, she risks everything to welcome the spies and to work with them, to commit for her people what would amount to treason because she believes that she's seeing God at work in these people. She doesn't understand it, but she believes it anyway. And Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, all of them have moments where they're not just a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit nervous. They are terrified. They are filled with panic. They are as afraid as anyone's ever been, and yet they find a way to keep trusting. And though thousands of years and countless technological advances separate us from them, we're just like them. We still have so many deep questions that we haven't found the answers for. We, we have so many things that logically lead us to places of anxiety. We have uncertainty. And the one thing that they all have in common is that they didn't, they didn't let it overcome them. Their faith in God was stronger than the fear in their hearts. So they followed the calling of God anyway. And I want you to hear this. Not fearlessly... As if there wasn't anything to fear, because there was. They didn't follow fearlessly, they followed faithfully, faithfully trusting that even if what they were most afraid of actually happened, God would still be there with them. That God would still fight for them. That God would still rescue them even if the form of that rescue wasn't what they expected or wanted, God would save them. And you know what? They followed faithfully despite the fact, the Hebrews writer says, despite the fact that none of them ever fully experienced all the goodness that God had promised them. And this morning, they make up the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. 
even as we're gathered here in this room, here we are, right, with gathered together this morning with, with plenty of our own unanswered questions and our own anxiety and our own uncertainty. The news is getting to the place where it's almost unbearable. Right? We, we have children in El Paso families who are going to get all their school supplies and 20 of them don't get back home. Nine people, last I heard, in Dayton, Ohio, families just out trying to enjoy the evening, nine of them don't come home. This is far from the first tragedy in our culture, and it will not be the last. And what we find is that it's so easy for us to give up, to give in to fear, and decide that it's never going to get better. To decide that while we believe in God, we're not sure we believe that God's here. That God's living and active and present among us. And we can start to decide that if God's not living in this world, if God is not through Christ still living for this world, that we can give up on this world as well. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the people in that great cloud of witnesses, they didn't just believe in God, they believed that God was in this world living and active and present, and they tried with everything in their power to see him even when they couldn't see him. And they believed that they didn't just believe in God, but that God believed in them, that God was working through them to do things that maybe nobody else in that moment could ever do. They wanted to be faithful to that calling. They weren't fearless, brothers and sisters. They had fear. But their fear of the Lord was stronger. Their respect of God was stronger. Their, their courage because of their relationship with God was stronger. This morning, as we consider all of them, and we remember the words of Scripture over and over again, don't be afraid. You have reasons to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't worry. You have all kinds of logical explanations for why you could worry. Don't worry. Don't let your life be run by it. And, and anxiety that, that we all in many different ways experience. Don't let that anxiety define who you are. The God we have doesn't make empty promises. And he doesn't offer us false assurances. Our God is faithful. He's a faithful companion. Even when our questions go unanswered. And our, our God is a comforting presence when our hearts are haunted by anxiety, our God is a calming caretaker. When our minds are filled with uncertainty, and our God, brothers and sisters, has planned something better for us than we could ever ask or imagine. And no matter what happens along the way, our God will be faithful. So let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And let us find a way in, in the coming days to realize this truth, that the faith we have in God can be, it must be, stronger than any fear we may have in our hearts. And I want to remind you of this. When I say our, our faith has to be stronger than the fear that's in our hearts, Jesus said that all it took was a faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. This isn't about being a faith superhero. It's, 
It's about being a person who in the face of all the things that may cause us to doubt, that may cause us to lose our trust in God, we choose once again to trust, to step out in faith, believing that no matter what happens, no matter where we're going, we will find God there with us. That he has never left us or forsaken us or abandoned us, and he is calling us for this this world that, that he sent his one and only son to save because of how much he loves it, that he's sending us out into the world to do what we can to reach people with that same love, no matter what, no matter how much it makes us afraid, that we are the people who overcome those fears for the sake of the good news. And so I want to give you just a simple thing to try this week. You may not struggle with this the way I do, but every week before noon on Monday... I have at least one reason to panic. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. When you feel that instinct start to kick in and you're about to let your fear start to run you, instead of choosing panic, I want to ask you to choose prayer. Stop in that moment and give that fear to God. Confess that you're afraid. Confess that you're stressed out and you're worried and you don't know what to do and ask for God to show up in a way that is undeniable. Ask for God to do something that you can see and feel and experience and be changed by. And over and over again this week, whenever you start to feel that instinct to panic, choose prayer. We're going to sing together now and as we do, our shepherds and their, their wives will be throughout our church lobby. They're there to pray with you to talk with you, to be Christian community for you. So if you came this morning with any concern at all or anything that you want to talk about with a Christian couple, please go to our shepherd couples as together we stand and sing.